Okay, hello, Michael. Uh, good to have you on the program. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. Good to be here. Um, I was uh, I was glad to read your article, uh, which was a review of uh, Abbas Amanat's book, uh, The History of Iran. And one of the things, one of, one of your main theses, I, I believe, that you're trying to get across in the uh, in the review, was your observation that. Iran, in its recent history, in the 20th century and the 21st, has vacillated between West toxification on the one hand, you know, or occidentosis as it's sometimes called, and the rigid literalism and legalism of the clergy on the other. And your view, if I under, your, your solution, if I understand it correctly, is what you call logocentrism. And that's a very interesting term. I wonder if you can elaborate on that and whether I've understood that thesis properly. Yeah, you did. That's, that's right. Uh, I think it comes out clearly in Amanat's book, which uh, begins around 1500. So it's more of a modern history, especially for Iran, Persia, which goes back so long, 2,500 years. But uh, basically, no matter, no matter who you take, let's take somebody like uh, Ali Shariati. Uh, you have uh, Iranians who then make contact with the West. So he goes to Paris in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, and he makes contact with the intellectual world there. Well, is that the West? In some sense, it is. But in some sense, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about Camus, Albert Camus, and we're talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. We're talking about uh, basically a reaction, a reaction to the history of the West that is known as existentialism, a reaction to French history, uh, which was itself a reaction to the traditions of the West in 1789 with the French Revolution. So you're invariably having uh, a contact uh, with a limited part, it's a, it's a kind of a category mistake where you're mistaking the part f for the whole. And I'm saying in order to get back to what really, what is the West? Why did this group of people suddenly have so much power so that they could come and basically arrive in the Islamic world and basically just take it over, uh, which is what pretty much what Iran was, the history of humiliation uh, for Iran uh, at the hands of the English, the whole story of the oil company and, and what happened yeah. there. How, how did that happen? Well, and there's a long story there, and I think that that's part of what needs to be told before we can talk about this, this oscillation, which I think is characteristic, certainly of recent Iranian history, where you have a group of people that go over, or you have a, a, a let's uh, be, uh, be honest, a coup d'etat in 1953, where a certain version of the West gets imposed upon Iran, and then everybody gets annoyed with it, and then you swing back to the other pole, which is the Islamic mobilization of the people against it, and then you have a revolution, and suddenly you have the re the uh, re-engineering of the coup in 1953 with the coup in 1979, and now you're, the pendulum swings in the opposite direction. The big, the big question is, is that the destiny for Iran? 
In other words, is it simply going to be this kind of pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth from some uh, a misunderstanding of the West to an, a weaponization of Islam and back and forth? Uh, because I think it, it's important because I think Iranian culture is, is unique. Uh, it's unique in that there was an Islamic conquest, but uh, they didn't they didn't abandon their language. And, and you've got this Iranian language, which I think is extremely important to Iranian identity and has provided a kind of duality uh, that needs to be taken into account if we want to understand the issues in Iran. OK, but that's right. Uh, I agree with you. And it's not not just Iran, but but the whole uh, third world and, and, and the whole, you know, non-modern world's confrontation with modernity which is the right. West. Um, and I appreciate you, you know, your, your big picture approach to this subject, which is basically what went wrong and, and how are we to uh, respond properly to modernity. And I think, right. and I think that the, the, the West also faces this question, but we, we more so in the third world and in Iran. Uh, but so I want to bring you back to the issue of uh, I, I know you uh, we want to talk about Asherism and you know what you call the uh, uh, the, the domination of Asherist anti-rationalism in Islam. I want to get to that. But first, I'd like you to talk about logocentrism and what you mean by that, because I think that's central to the issue. Yeah, it is central to the issue. And so I, and from a personal point of view, I did a book called The, uh, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, uh, a big book. And it, it was, the reason I did it was because of the neoconservative takeover of American foreign policy in 2003 and the war in Iraq. It, it was obvious the Jews had taken over American foreign policy. And so uh, I sort of said, well, what's a Jew? And you could, you didn't, nobody knew. I mean, is it an ethnic group? Is it a religion? And in order to do that, I had to trace it back to the beginning, the crucial turning point in history, which was the arrival of Jesus Christ among the Hebrew tribes. And the Jews at this point either have to accept them or reject them. There were Jews who accepted them, and they're known as Christians. The Jews who rejected them are known as Jews now. And what are they? Well, what is Christ? Christ is the Logos incarnate. Now, this is a Greek word that got adopted when the basically the Christians decided they're going to write in Greek because they lived in a Greek world. And it was the lingua franca. It was the English of their day. If you wanted to talk to someone out of your tribe, you had to talk to Greek. And the crucial turning point came here when St. Paul went to uh, Greece uh, because the Jews wouldn't talk to him anymore. And he goes to the Areopagus and he gives the wrong speech, which they're philosophers and he's criticizing idol worshipers. And St. John, who was in Ephesus at the time, I think he understood he gave the wrong speech. He thinks we need a new approach to talk to the rest of the world. And he began his gospel with very simple Greek sentences. In the beginning, there was logos, which is speech. This is the central word for Greek philosophy. That is what we are as human beings. We're rational creatures. So in the beginning, there was Logos. Logos is with God, and Logos is God. Now, that is a fundamental assertion of this religion, that there is a rationality to God. 
Okay, when the Jews killed Christ, they attacked the Logos. When you make your identity based on anti-Logos, you become revolutionaries, and that's what they've been for 2,000 years, and they are today, today. They are this revolutionary group that is always trying to destroy the dominant culture wherever they get, uh, whenever they get enough power. So Logos is not just speech, it is speech, it's the order of the universe. Okay. There is an order to the universe. Now, this is even this is a controversial statement, but I think it's true. And the main manifestation of that order of the universe, as it spread throughout uh, the world through uh, European imperialism, was basically technology and science, and that gave them uh, an edge in weaponry. And suddenly, they were able to subdue the world. That meeting, okay, is uh, with the third world. If that's what you call it. What do you want to call it? is a distorted version of Logos. But every time every time the world has come in contact, pretty much every time the world comes in contact with it, it's some sort of distorted version of, of Logos, which causes a reaction. Well, I mean, um, okay, thanks for that definition. And if you remember back in 2013, I think it was, when you gave your first speech at the New Horizon Conference, uh, you asked me for a translation of Logos, and I, I suggested, uh, I think, Nizam Tawhidi, which was like basically the uh, Tawhidic order or the integral order right. of the world. And one of the one of the points of contention I have with your assertion and your re review is uh, that it, it, that is fully present in, in Islam. Uh, and yes, it could be that Asherism, you know, denies uh, uh, reason and justice, but in Shia Islam, uh, that is not the case. It hasn't been the case. And that's not to say that there hasn't been fetist strains in Shia Islam. But uh, certainly since the Ayatollah, uh, you know, uh, Khomeini, um, uh, the uh, uh, who, who was a teacher of philosophy at the seminaries. Um, the seminary, you know, philosophy has enjoyed uh, um, much currency in the seminary in Qom, and, and it's the dominant uh, uh, force in, in Qom right now. And the, and the you know, anti-rationalists um, have been marginalized. So that's, so that's one place I disagree with you. Uh, on and I think that because of that, I would put the problem elsewhere. Okay. I, uh, first of all, the, the point of the uh, the review is to say that there has been an obvious uh, distinction, and I would say conflict between uh, Shia Islam and Sunni Islam. That's obvious. Okay, uh, we 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 talked about the history of this. You know, I talked about that uh, in the review. I'm saying that uh, the the from my understanding that the uh, Mutazilites uh, never succeeded in uh, basically establishing a firm base in Islam. Right, but they were succeeded by the by by Shia, Shia Islam. You know, right, and I and I did say I did mention that that, yeah. that is the tradition. This conflict is there to this day. Yeah. So I began by talking about the yeah. meeting with the Ayatollah Shakrud, where the first thing he wants to talk about is the conflict with Saudi Arabia. 
That conflict is there today. It's still there. And it hasn't, it's not going to be, I'm saying if it hasn't been resolved in 1,500 years, it's never going to be resolved. It's just not going to be resolved. And it's getting worse. It's getting worse because of the Saudi alliance now with Israel. I I think that the problem, where the problem lies is uh, the same thing with the West, in, in a sense. In other words, for 500 years, there is this phenomenon which we call modernity that has come on the scene which uh, which has come about as a result of uh, the scientific outlook and 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 this outlook is in in many ways is in uh, you know juxtaposed with tradition and there are uh, tensions uh, that is that is created as a result of that and because we don't have uh, a new scripture or a scripture that is relevant to to this day and age um, and you know in your case the magisterium isn't able and in our case you know the the ulama aren't able to address the problems of today satisfactorily uh, that, that that I think is where the real problem lies is that there's there's no uh, we're cut off from the divine axis so yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, there's certainly problems in the West. That is part of the problem. When people say what the West is, it could very well be the absolute opposite of Logos. If what you're talking about is, uh, let's say, uh, Jacques Derrida and deconstructionism, that's a, a Jewish attack on the idea that there is anything called Logos. But on the other hand, we did have uh, actual contact. Thanks to you, we went to Qualm. Remember, uh, we went to Qualm, and we had. I met with your friend, yeah. uh, the mullah, and uh, I had real difficulty talking with him. Do you remember that? We, do you yes. remember the yes, conversation we that had? That was there? in Mashhad, yeah. But uh, let's. Uh, we need to take a break, so let's pick up that conversation right after the break. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right, we're back, Michael. Uh, so um, we've come to where I wanted to to end up, actually, because, like I was saying, I think that the the, the anti uh, anti philosophy you were kind of thrown by it because of uh, you know Ostad Nasiri, if you remember, and he is an anti right. anti uh, he's anti philosophical and he's anti mystical and but he's definitely not representative of uh, present day, uh, the, the present day seminary, even though okay. throughout a lot of the history that, that, ha- that has been a dominant uh, trend. But over the last 300 years, uh, when the Akhbaris were defeated by the Usulis, the principalists, um, you know, the ra- rationalism became a much stronger element in, in, the, in the seminary. I mean, it, it, there is a crisis now in well, the Catholic Church as well. Uh, well Germany, there's some, something called the synodal way. Germany has basically repudiated traditional Catholic sexual teaching. But the point that I was trying to make with uh, Iran is Iran is facing a serious demographic crisis right now. Y- yeah, uh, you were saying uh, about uh, that there's like a 20-year time window to do something about this? Okay, so I gave this talk at, at a mosque on the University of uh, Tehran campus, uh, and at the, after it, there were, you know, the men are sitting there. I asked how many married men there were. They raised their hand. I went down the line, and I said, how many children do you have? 
Well, not one married man had one child, one child. There were no children. And I said, uh, if this is a serious problem, if you don't have children, if your generation does not have children, the uh, Persian culture will disappear after a 2,500 run. 500 year right. run. Right. But a lot. That's a, that's a serious problem. But it, I agree with you, but a, a, a lot of that has to do with economic uh, causes because people are under such economic pressure now. It's, it's a serious problem. The British had this problem after World War II. They did a survey to find out why the English weren't having children. It, it uh, certainly is an economic element. I'm not trying to deny it. I'm trying, not trying to deny the role that the sa sanctions play, but I think that it goes deeper than that. And I think that the main issue is the attitude toward the future. Uh, that's, there, there's a problem there. There's always going to be. It's a problem in the West. There's a problem with contraception. Uh, now, the problem is that uh, once people get into this habit, the birth rate collapses. And with the birth rate collapses, that's the end of your country. That's the end of the workforce. That's the end of the world for, yeah. for, your, for your people. Yeah, and and I, this, is, this is a problem that's, that's facing the West uh, because these countries, uh, they try to disguise the fact, uh, European countries, by uh, encouraging immigration. But th these are p populations that are dying out. Germany, I've had first-hand experience of that. I know the story of Germany intimately because I live there, I speak German, and I've done a lot of research on it. And that was part of the social engineering that got imposed on Germany uh, after World War II because it was a conquered nation and because the Jews uh, were looking for revenge and the government provided them an option by allowing them ruthless forms of social engineering. I'm saying that the, the, the problem, is, it's a worldwide problem, okay? Iran is faced with the problem. The question is, how is Iran going to deal with this problem? Where does this fit in when you have nuclear physics as one option and uh, the mullah telling you that a, a Coke, uh, just because you start the Coke, you don't have to finish the Coke on the other. Where does that fit in? How are you going to how are you going to solve this problem with those two tools? And I'm saying you can't solve it with those two tools. Mm. Yeah, my understanding is is that the NGOs, uh, the influence that uh, the NGOs brought to bear on Iran. Uh, had a role in it as well, and that uh, they were trying to suppress the population growth. Uh, also, this is warfare. Know. Population control is warfare. It's covert warfare. In the United States, it was covert warfare where the Jews and the Protestants united against the Catholics and promoted birth control first, and then the Jewish sacrament arrived, which is abortion. Only now is it coming out with the possibility that Roe versus Wade, the abortion decision, may be overturned. The Jews are now coming out and saying abortion is a fundamental value, well, and if you prevent us from having abortion, you will prevent us from keeping our religion. What, what this means, in effect, was that this had been imposed on the entire population as a form of covert warfare by this small group. I don't know. First, I don't have any personal information about the Jews, but I know that the World Health Organization, I mean, that's their policy, right, is, uh, is birth control. Right.
Right. Birth, it started off, I mean, if you're talking about the history, it started off as a Protestant crusade, which was birth control, because people like Aldous Huxley and everyone in England and the ruling class felt that there were too many people. They were all devotees of Malthus, who felt that uh, the population always outstripped the food supply, which meant we all should have starved to death about 200 years ago, which didn't happen. Yeah. So it's obviously false. But that Malthusianism, which was part of the Protestant crusade, morphed into the, the Jewish abortion crusade, and basically the two of them now together determine policy in organizations like the World Health Organization. Okay, uh, I, I want to move uh, the discussion to uh, another topic. Uh, what I'd like you to do, if you could, is to give, you, you have access to a large Persian-speaking Persian audience, Iranian audience, and I, I'd like you to give them an overview of uh, traditional Catholicism and how it's different from the Catholic Church today, you know, and post-Vatican II and what happened in Vatican II and basically what's going on with that, that whole, the, the whole rift between traditional Catholicism on the one hand and, you know, post-Vatican II Catholicism. Okay, so the main, the, to get to the crucial issue, the main issue is the United States of America. After World War II, the United States emerged as one of two superpowers. Uh, the other one was the Soviet Union. They were the victors in World War II, and they were basically controlling the world at this point. The Catholic Church had survived this. Uh, Pius XII was the pope. He's getting older. By the 1950s, he is now getting non compus mentis. The tradition is uh, you die uh, in, uh, as pope. You know, you keep that office until you die. So now there's a man who's non compus mentis uh, who is struggling. And the Vatican, the officials in the Vatican, uh, understand this, and they understand that there is a, a kind of ossification that has taken place in the church. There's too much power concentrated in one man. So Pius XII was a lot like Hitler, Stalin, Roosevelt, if you got it on the radio, you could control the entire population. This is not a good idea. They want to uh, address the current issue. So uh, Cardinal Ottaviani, who is the second in command, basically goes uh, after Pius XII dies. He goes to John XXIII and said, we have to have a council. We are not meeting, adequately meeting the, the modern world. Now, Ottaviani was the author of this. He came up with uh, proposals. They were called the preliminary documents. And in these preliminary documents, he really talked about two threats to the Catholic Church. He talked about communism. Everybody knew that. But then he started talking about America as a threat. Now, if you want some type of understanding of the mindset, I recommend that you watch uh, Fellini's film, film La Dolce Vita. Because this is the Americanization of Italy, the traditional culture of Italy. And I think both Ottaviani and Fellini perceived the Americans as a threat. They mentioned Hollywood and they mentioned um, psycho, psychoanalysis, which are also two Jewish uh, operations. So that's the, that sets the stage, and then they convoke the council, and then the Germans show up. And suddenly there is a guy, Cardinal Frings was a heroic figure in resisting the American occupation of Germany in the 1950s. He resisted the first attempt, the Jewish attempt, the Morgenthau plan to starve the Germans to death. 
which happened over the winter of 1946-47. He said, if there's a food down the way and you can take it, it's not theft. The second wave of this was the sexual social engineering and flooding Germany with pornography. He fought against that as well. Now there's a council, and now he finds this brilliant young guy by the name of Joseph Ratzinger. Okay, he's going to be his, uh, Frings can't see, he's blind, he can hardly talk. And so Ratzinger, in effect, becomes the mind behind Frings, who is one of the crucial figures in the council. And basically what Ratzinger does is throw out the Ottaviani documents. Uh, but basically Michael, a coup d'etat where he takes over the council. Okay, hello, Michael. The audience here don't even know what Vatican II was, so you need to take a step back and, and uh, discuss just the, the give, me, give, give me a broad brush uh, image of uh, what, what was going on rather than these details. What Ratzinger did was he imposed the Germans took over the church. And when the Germans took over the church, they imposed the Holocaust narrative on the church. The Holocaust narrative is the fundamental myth of the American empire. That is why the Americans are good people. That's why you should simply roll over and play dead whenever the Americans show up and take over your culture. That is the fundamental myth and it got imposed on the Catholic Church and that has caused the crisis which you talked about, uh, which you talked about at the beginning. They, there, there was a, a, a reaction against the council that is known as traditionalism. It was led by uh, Archbishop Lefebvre. And it was an in, I'm saying it was an inchoate revolution or an inchoate reaction because they didn't understand the problem. They mistook the part for the whole. And so they made a big deal about the Latin mass, which is not crucial to the whole thing. And that created this reaction. People like Bishop Williamson, I think he's on your list of, uh, yeah. of uh, thinkers. Uh, he was the one who basically, uh, they, the archbishop broke with the church and created a schismatic movement when he ordained those bishops. And that is known as traditionalism. Now, the crisis what percentage, came. What percentage of, uh, of, of the Catholic population do the traditional Catholics represent? And how, how far afield is the majority from the traditional uh, historical body of the church? That's, that's, uh, all right, if you're asking me for numbers, I can't give you, I can't I mean, give you I'm, numbers. I mean, it, just, it depends, it depends I mean, the, on the country. There's a very strong traditionalist movement in France. There's not a strong traditionalist movement in Germany. Germany, the other side. So the other side of the coin is you've got the two extremes, just as I was talking about with Iran or Islam. You've got two extremes now. You got on the one hand are traditionalists that is basically fixated on irrelevant things like the Latin Mass. They don't think it's irrelevant, but they, it is. And you got another group of basically uh, the Jesuits who are now running the church, who are basically trying to impose the homosexual agenda on the church through the Jesuits. You see those two extremes? Neither yeah. one is really representative of the Catholicism that I'm trying to talk about here. Yeah. The one that talks about Logos. Neither one is representative of that, and that's the problem. You've yeah. got two warring factions trying to fight for control of the Catholic Church yeah, at this I, moment. And that's what I was saying earlier, is that 
your tradition is, is, in, is in just as much a crisis and trying to grapple with modernity as we are. You know, right. you know we're going, right. we're That's vacillating right. from, from, you know, whatever, literalism to uh, West toxification, and, and you're, you're grappling with a, a similar but different kind of problems. Um, okay, uh, let me get your uh, opinion on what's going on with Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, uh, some people say it was, it's Russia's fault. Some people say Russia was goaded into it. What's your take? NATO is the aggressor in the Ukraine. NATO is the aggressor. It's clear that this, first of all, uh, what happened in 1991 is that the, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, peacefully withdrew from Eastern Europe, and the United States ruthlessly exploited that goodwill on the part of people like uh, Gorbachev and ruthlessly expanded NATO ever eastward until finally they reached the red line. And uh, this is when uh, Putin told them, uh, don't uh, bring NATO, uh, don't bring the Ukraine into NATO. Mm -hmm. That could have been resolved peacefully. This war was unnecessary, but the, the, the aggressors here, and I'm talking about Victoria Nuland, who orchestrated that coup d'etat uh, in the Ukraine 2014. in 2014. Uh, these are the aggressors, and uh, as soon as they did that, they, they weaponized the uh, Azov Brigade, the Nazi brigades that they used to overthrow the government, and then they started using them to attack the Russian population in, in the Donbass, shelling them. 14,000 people died, and Putin kept trying to reason with them, and you can't reason with these people. You can't reason with Anthony Blinken. You can't reason with Victoria Nuland. They have relatives who died in the Holocaust, and they're always right. And so uh, they had this messianic attitude, the Jewish revolutionary spirit, and they provoked the war. That's what caused the war. And so that, that, that brings me to the question of the neocons. I mean, it's, it sounds like no matter what administration is in power over there, the neocons are always going to be uh, calling the shots when it comes to foreign policy. That's right. So Victoria Luland's the wife of Robert Kagan. Robert Kagan is a notorious neocon. And uh, everybody is embarrassed by George Bush's invasion of Iraq now. Uh, uh, but the fact of the matter is you've got the same people running our foreign policy. So you go from, uh, uh, you know, now we got uh, Donald Trump. There, there wouldn't be a war if Donald Trump were in power. But Donald Trump's controlled by, by the Jews as well. So this is the fundamental problem of American foreign policy or American government. Do we have representative government? I think the answer is no. Mm -hmm. We have one dollar, one vote. The money rules the, uh, the government and the money is controlled by Jews and they are the ones who determine the basic policy of the United States of America. And that's why uh, the, uh, we're at war with Iran. This is not the interest of the American people, it's in the interest of Israel. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, so talking about American politics, um, tell, tell the Iranian public, if you would, um, just paint a broad brush picture of what's going on in American politics right now as a result of the, the Trump years. Is he going to come back? What, what's, go, what's happening with his support base? What's going to go on in the 2022 elections? And what's going to happen in the 2024 elections? Well, um, what, what, what you're seeing now, 
and this, uh, this is why the abortion decision is so important. The abortion decision was basically uh, Jewish religion imposed on the entire United States of America. And now after, it's almost 50 years now, the Supreme Court has finally realized it doesn't work. It's not going to work. That was overreach. Uh, the federal government was got way too powerful during this period of time. And so what they're saying is, we're going to hand it back to the states. So what you're seeing now is a devolution of power back to uh, local government to some extent. They will decide on abortion. And so what you're seeing, the rising power now uh, in the United States would be a guy like uh, Governor DeSantis of Florida, uh, who recently stood up to Disney. This is a real significant battle. Walt Disney was the creator of all those famous cartoons like, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse. He's an, uh, created the iconography of uh, America based on his experience from small towns. And he went to Hollywood and he immediately got in battle with the Jews. And that's what this battle is about. It's a battle about uh, who's go who has sovereignty in America. So just as I told you, the government, the federal government has gotten too powerful. It's going back to the states. Now there's a battle in Florida about who controls the government. Is it Disney or is it the people that uh, get elected by uh, uh, the people of Florida? That's the fundamental fundamental value is a battle now is about representative government. It's not just America, but it's, it's certainly in America, but it's throughout the world. Yeah, Do we have representative government or not? Um, well, I, um, I mean, I think what you said earlier answers that question, which is one dollar, one vote. Um, but uh, but what about the elections? I mean, uh, is is Trump going to be be back for for 2024, or is is he uh, going to be uh, uh, is he uh, uh, under you know is, has lawsuits against him? Uh, are they going to stop him from running? And if he runs, if if, if he does run, is he going to uh, win again? What, what are his chances? Well, the, poll, the polls now say if, if you were asked to vote tomorrow, would you vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, the overwhelming majority is saying they're going to vote for Donald Trump because Biden is the most unpopular president in, in history. Uh, so that's that. The question is uh, what happened the first time around? Just because you're president doesn't mean you run the government. And what you saw was the government running itself. The FBI, for example, is uh, who runs the FBI? I don't know, but it certainly wasn't the Justice Department. Now the Justice Department, this guy Merrick Garland, is now using the FBI as his own personal Gestapo to basically destroy any political opposition. Now, the, the big question uh, is, what, number one, was the 2020 election stolen? Uh, the, you, have, you have this uh, show trial being orchestrated about January 6th as if it were some type of a insurrection, which it certainly was not. But that's what the Democrats are saying, I think, to cover over the fact that they stole the election. So if it was stolen, uh, how are you going to guarantee that the next election is going to, isn't going to be stolen? And I'm talking about the one in November where there should be a huge reaction against the Democrats. But what is it? It's just natural. What does it even matter if there, either way, in terms of foreign policy anyway, is it going to be the neocons uh, that are going to be calling us the shots anyway? You know, it's like the Pax Judaica rather than the Pax Americana. Anyway. That's the problem. Yeah. So, so the guy I mentioned as the great white hope right now, if you use that term, uh -huh. is Governor DeSantis of Florida. Well, he's trying to get, he's every bit in, be, in bed with the Jews as, as Trump was. 
So what are you going to do? That's the uh, you're right. That's the fundamental problem of American politics right now is okay. Jewish control of of the government. Okay, let's let's take a break right there, and we'll be, we'll be back in a minute. Okay, we're back, Michael. All right, so we're gonna uh, we're gonna spend the rest of uh, uh, you know the final part of the show talking about um, what we just finished with, which is you know the, basically the failure of democracy and and how and why it has not lived up to the promise that it was supposed to be, uh, and you know what is to be done about it. Okay, so the American uh, experiment, it was called an experiment because no one had ever done it before. And the, the government was uh, basically let the people represent themselves, self-representative government. That was the experiment. And John Adams said, we have no constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. So in other words, the government was not going to have any involvement with religion. Uh, the churches had control of that, and they had to assure that they would uphold the moral law. Well, that's precisely what ha did not happen during this period of time. And just to simplify it, uh, after World War II, there were certain powerful groups that got involved in the deliberate moral subversion of the American people. Now, why did they do that? Because if you're uh, an immoral person, is easy to control. And the whole point of this became social control. So the preliminary battle was over Hollywood, uh, uh, nudity in films in Hollywood. That battle took place in 1933, uh, when the Jews basically capitulated to the Catholics and allowed the Catholics to control the content of, of the films. That code was broken in 1965, which was the last year of the Second Vatican Council. And the Vatican Council played a crucial role in the collapse of the policing of Hollywood because they did a document on the Jews. It's the Holocaust narrative I've already mentioned, which got internalized in the church. And basically, the Jews were no longer enemies, which is the way they are certainly portrayed in the gospel. They are enemies of the entire human race. That's what St. Paul said. It wasn't Adolf Hitler or St. Paul. So once you have a situation where you have moral corruption, money rules. And that's the situation we have now. Money rules. It largely took over through television. Because in order to get elected to office, you had to have a lot of uh, TV advertisements. And that was very expensive. And so uh, it, one thing led to the, to the other. And that's how we are in the situation. Moral corruption followed by money and usury. Uh, is that basically the? You had a book uh, called Something Dominandi. Uh, was that the, libido was dominandi, mm -hmm. sexual liberation and political control? Yes, that's the thesis of that book. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, okay, but, uh, but but what's the solution? What's to be done? Uh, you have to learn to control your passions. No, but not just, not sexually. I'm, not, I'm talking about politically. What's, what's the political solution? No, no, that, that's the basis of, that's the start. You first of all have to understand that sexual liberation is not freedom. It's a form of control. Once you get control over your own life, then you can get together with one other person, a member of the opposite sex, and you can get married. 
And at that point, you can start to have children and a family, and then you can start to rebuild the culture from the ground up. You can get together with other families, and you will agree that we are not going to allow drag, string, drag queen story hour in our school or library. So, and this is the way you take back control of your culture. So is, is this, in your opinion, is this the... Uh, logical conclusion of the uh, American experiment of democracy or you know, what went wrong if that's not the logical conclusion of it? What went wrong is people didn't understand what freedom is. Freedom is not the ability to, to gratify your illicit desires. Freedom is the ability to do what is right. Freedom is bound up with logos, with rationality. You are free to be rational. You are not free to be irrational. Mm -hmm. All vice is irrationality. As soon as you capitulate to vice, a man has as many masters as he has vices. That's what St. Augustine said, who was also the author of the term libido dominandi. But um, I, I mean, I agree with, with all of that. Uh, in other words, there's a difference. There's two uh, definitional issue. One is... Uh, defining freedom as uh, as the removal of any barrier so that you can do whatever you want and uh, the other definition that we share in common is that uh, we are only free uh, we are free if and when uh, we conform ourselves to the natural order to God's right. to, to God's will right. Um, but but where do we go get from go from there on the one hand to uh, the failure of democracy as a political system on the other because I mean I don't know I mean uh, are, 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 are the democratic countries is, is the United States any more um, uh, perverse sexually than than this country uh, uh, I mean in, in certain portions I, of the population. I, 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 Possibly, but I, I have lived in both Germany and the United States, and I would say that morality is uh, sexual morality was obliterated in Germany in a way that was not obliterated in the United States of America, because Germany was a conquered country and they simply didn't have the resistance that the people had in America. They're the two countries I can talk about firsthand. Mm -hmm. So I think it is worse. And so Germany is now at the point where it's committing suicide. It is committing suicide by joining with NATO in attacking Russia. Russia supplies Germany's energy needs. Why are the Germans doing this? Because they are conquered. They are a conquered people, and the real conquest took place when they abandoned their sexual morality. That's what I'm saying. That's a crucial factor. And, and, and you think democracy played a role uh, in this and and uh, if not democracy then what uh, what you go back to the no, holy I, roman empire no I, i'm saying what john adams said is true you can't have democracy unless you have morality mm -hmm. because if you can't govern yourself you can't govern anyone else can you you know, if you can't govern your own unruly passions, if you're all going to get drunk and you're going to get obese from eating too much and screwing every, anybody you find, no, you're not going to be able to control your own life. And if you can't control your own life, how can you expect to, to control the government?
that the government got involved in the deliberate subversion of sexual morality as a form of controlling the population. It wasn't just sex, it's drugs as well. Yeah. Drugs played a crucial factor in this. You got the state of Michigan decriminalizing marijuana. But why are they doing that? Because they want a population that is docile and stupid and goes along with whatever they're told. Okay, Mike, we're, uh, what I wanted to ask you about is, um, uh, I mean, the, the whole issue of sexuality that you mentioned, I mean, now it's getting to the point where it's getting from just ridiculous, it's out of control because it's going from homosexuality right. to transgenderism. I mean, there's a complete breakdown of uh, gender identity and then pedophilia. Right. I mean, what, 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 how has democracy engendered this? And what's happening uh, in, in that country with, re with respect to these things? Well, the fundamental question is, is there's a, a logos to sex? which is the, the conversation that I tried to have in Guam. Is there a logos to sex? Is there a reality to which we must conform ourselves if we want to have a happy outcome with our sexual activity? I'm sure there and is. The, so the question, so it got framed at this point after World War II as a question of how do we answer the question? Is it science or is it religion? And at this point, the Rockefellers created a guy by the name of Alfred Kinsey, who was uh, an entomologist, who said, no, science has the answer. And science says, basically, it's whatever you say it is. Uh, Kinsey was a homosexual, so he had a, a, a stake in this fight. So, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, first of all, the first step along, you didn't get the transgenderism overnight. The first step is to disconnect procreation from the sexual act. That's what they were interested in because the Catholics were having too many children. The blacks were having too many children. We know them to stop that. Use contraception. That will say that you are now in control of the logos of sexuality. It's not something God created. It's what you create. And so I get on to, to, on the Internet. There are these ladies with tattoos who want to debate with me about they can do whatever they want. And because she studied uh, the reproductive system. And then I said, well, wait a minute, honey, what's the reproductive system? And she was caught because there is a purpose to this and reproduction is part of that purpose. But now science tells us, no, it doesn't have to be that way. So once you disconnect procreation from sexual activity, then you're in charge and then homosexuality is okay. And once homosexuality is okay, well, then anything is okay because there is no being, there is no logos here to control your behavior. And so why can't you just say, you're not a female? You're, I, I, it looks as if you were a female, but I have control of that too. And if I take hormones, I can cut off my penis and I can become a female if I'm a male. That's the logic of this thing because it began with rebellion against being and rebellion against Logos. So, the, uh, the this agenda, uh, you know, uh, the transgender, homosexuality, pedophilia agenda, uh, and God knows where it's going, but I mean, it's being used, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to uh, control people by saying that, you know, if if, if 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 you're not on board with this program, you're a homophobe, or uh, you know, you're transphobic, and, right. and it has consequences in people's economic lives, 
in their social lives and in their academic lives and all of that. Yes, it's a form of control. Mm. It, it claims to be liberation, but it's really a form of control. And what you have is a, a people who have taken over the instruments of our culture uh, while the politicians were looking the other direction. This is the crucial difference between, let's say, Michel Foucault or uh, Antonio Gramsci and Karl Marx. The traditional communist idea was to take over the means of production. But Gramsci and Foucault understood that you can take over the culture, and that's more important than the means of production. And so while the Republicans were all reading Karl Marx, uh, the Democrats and the CIA were reading Foucault and Gramsci, and they basically took over the government uh, in a coup d'etat that nobody noticed. That's well, the situation we're in right now. Well, why is it that nobody noticed? I mean, is it... I, could, there, there was a book by, I think it was Alan Bloom, called The Closing of the American Mind. That was one of the early books that went against relativism, if I'm not mistaken. And it seems like there's a deliberate plan of keeping, uh, keeping the political consciousness of the population uh, at a very low level, because people right. really don't know what's going on. Is, do you think it's, right. it's, a, it's a conscious effort, it's a planned program? Yes, of course it is. That's what uh, mainstream media are there for, to keep you stupid. That's watch Good Morning America. It tells you what to think every day when you get up drinking coffee. Now, the problem here is that uh, I think a more important book was Tenured Radicals uh, by Roger Kimball. That was right. I was there when it happened. It was when literary criticism, the Jews took over literary criticism, and then they took over the academy. And uh, Roger Kimball is trying to explain what's going on, and he says it's communist. No, it's not. That was the problem. They didn't have the vocabulary that could identify who was doing what. If you can't identify the enemy, you're going to lose the war. That's what the Chinese guy said. And that's what was happening. They were, still, they were so frozen in the obsolete categories of the anti-communist crusade that they couldn't identify the Gramscian, Foucauldian takeover of our culture. So, and and the final note on this whole uh, theme is, I mean, wh where is it all going? What's going to, I mean, how, how can this continue like this? Wh what's going to happen? This is, the fundamental principle is that God is contr in control of human history. That is the fundamental principle that we're dealing with here. So how does God act in human history? The most basic way he acts is what Hegel called the cunning of reason, which is basically you bring about the wicked, bring about the opposite of what they intend. This is the class, what is happening right now with the Ukraine and American foreign policy. The fundamental principle of Anglo-American foreign policy is control of the Eurasian landmass by dividing the Eurasian landmass. What the United States foreign policy has done, what the Jews at the Treasury Department have done through their sanctions is the exact opposite. They have united the Eurasian landmass. The uh, St. Petersburg Economic International Economic Forum is a classic example of what I'm talking about. Russia is now embracing China. When we had adults running uh, uh, the foreign policy, adults like Henry Kissinger, he understood that Nixon should divide China from Russia. Well, these uh, people aren't that smart. And they basically brought about the union of the very thing that they wanted, should have wanted to prevent. Um, and 
Just one last question about just going back to the issue of the Ukraine war. And I guess it bears on this whole issue of political consciousness or lack thereof. On the one hand, when, when the United States invades countries like Iraq, is occupying Syria, and doing all these things that are against the, you know, the war crimes against the United Nations Charter, all of the so-called democracies don't say anything. But as soon as Russia acts to uh, um, protect its own interest, if you like, in the Ukraine and draw a line, they're all up in arms. What do you say to that? It's known as hypocrisy. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly that's exactly what's going on. And what makes this hypocrisy plausible is the huge media machine that uh, tells you what to think. Uh, if Russia is winning the war. They are going to win this war. Uh, they're winning it on the ground, but they are not winning the propaganda war. And what we're going to see here is that no matter how many times the mainstream media say it, uh, Ukraine is not winning the war. So it, you can try to impose this category of the mind, but ultimately the category of the reality is going to triumph over it. And that's, I think, a good sign for everyone. So, so you're, you're ultimately you're, you're optimistic despite the, the, the horrendous realities uh, and the horrendous deviations from Logos, as you say. Right. Uh, you're you're I, optimistic I, that I, ultimately God's will, will uh, um, triumph. There can be no question whether God's will will triumph or not. Mm. That is, if, if he didn't triumph, he wouldn't be God. Mm -hmm. So God's will does have to triumph. When we, I don't know whether you were in the room in Mashab when I said this. I said, I, I'm, pray, I said I'm praying, and if, if any American disagrees with me, let me know. But I'm praying for the peaceful end of the American empire. <laughs> That's what needs to happen. God is going to bring this about because no empire lasts forever. God allows these things to happen because he knows that he can bring good out of evil. And the good, I think, that came out of this American empire is the fact that you and I can talk now uh, because I don't speak Farsi and we can have these international discussions. This is what I tried to tell Alexander Dugin, that there is some good coming out of this because there is, I think, a global consciousness that is now emerging. And it's based on Logos because it has to be based on Logos because there's no other alternative. And if we can talk about that, uh, that's a great step. And that means that God brought some good out of this evil. That's all the time we have for right now. I want to thank you for coming on the program and hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. Mamnun ke hamroh ma budid ta barname baad khoda hafiz.